0: In a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. And welcome to the CEO Raider podcast. It's your host, John Mayetta, I thought we'd catch up on some news today. Going into the Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm working on a longer form piece about autonomous vehicles and that ecosystem. If you follow me on LinkedIn, if you follow CEO Raider on LinkedIn, if you follow me or the company on Twitter, Facebook, our blog Tech Today, T E K number two Day, then you will have seen a teaser that we published about autonomous vehicles. And given that it's such a popular subject and it's one that's of interest to me given my experience, I wanted to talk about it, but I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach where you know most of the industry commentary is around the adoption curve and what unit seals may look like. And frankly I've in, in my experience, particularly with technology, adoption curves as published by industry analysts are always too rosy. It assumes you know, traction on day one is basically what traction will look like in ten years, meaning that the ramp is immediately at steady state and then the 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 curve more or less just goes up and to the right. When in fact what happens is the ramp is traditionally slow with most products, and then you hit some sort of inflection point, some sort of critical mass, you cross the chasm and then things just accelerate. Same on the downside. If you think about the unbundling of of cable, as an example, cable TV, and how, you know, remember the industry guys and the uh, CEOs talked about how that would be. First, they didn't see it, even though it was going on. And then it was, we see it, but it's slow. We think it'll be a slow, you know, it's not going to be slow. It's going to be abrupt and violent, which is what happened. John Skipper at ESPN. So in any event, rather than talk about unit sales and adoption curves, I thought it makes sense to talk about who will be sort of the winners and the losers. If you think about the value chain and the different participants in the supply chain and the broader ecosystem. So that I'll either put it out over the weekend or I'll put it out early next week. Today, I just wanted to skip through the news and I'm just going to sort of riff. There are a number of headlines that just sort of caught my eye. And so I'm just going to flip through them. The first one, it's probably just, it's not the most earth shattering thing, but it just speaks to my personal experience. For any of you who have used Excel, Microsoft Excel, and I've spent most of my life, my working life anyway, on, on Excel and how it just hasn't kept up with the times. Because typically what happens is, you know, most organizations, you, you're, you, you compile data. So my, my former life as a sell-side analyst. So all the sell-side guys, buy-side investors, private equity, venture, you all sort of model your various companies in Excel. What do you think revenue is going to look like? What's profitability they're going to look like? What's customer adoption going to look like? Customer churn, net new ads, gross margins, operating margins, gap accounting, non-gap accounting, EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, free cash flow, all this stuff. And if you're worth the your assault on the sell side, you model the free cash flow. So I think I had it easy in my old life. I had, what, high teens number of companies that I covered and would track and excel. And there's a little bit of work. To make sure that the data I had in the the various models was was fresh and the most recent data. Would have preferred to have used a, a flexible software system that prevented me from entering stale data or looking at stale data. Kinda had to, you know, be vigilant about that and that was largely a manual process. Now the, the the folks that have it tough in my view are the men and women who work in finance organizations. So whether it's corporate finance you know, inside a company, you run an M and A practice, but particularly inside a company, just the traditional corporate plain vanilla corporate finance function that r- rolls up into a CFO, where you're rolling up data, financial data from disparate sources, you know, different business units, different geographies, different countries, in many cases. So data has to be translated into you know the reporting currency, rolled up. Do we have the most recent version of the data from country ABC? Okay, let's roll it into the sort of the master financial file. Messy and fraught with risk. So I was reading an article today in the the Wall Street Journal about how CFOs are sort of moving on from Excel. And I'm just surprised we're talking about this in 2017. I mean, just a ton of risk in rolling up financial data using Excel and hoping that at the end of the process, you have a single version of the truth. And then you're using that to ultimately to supply your reporting tool that you use to submit your financials if you're a public company to the SEC. A ton of risk. Because the risk is you have an error in the process and it's material enough of an error where you have to file a a restatement. And even if it's not a massive restatement, even if it's just a, a, you know, one quarter, we, as a result of this error, we, you know, underreported or overreported taxes and it cost us maybe half a penny, whatever. But enough of an error where you have to file an 8K and now investors think you don't have your arms around the process. And it's just, you know, it's an honest mistake it's amazing that more of this doesn't happen. And I've never worked in a corporate finance organization. I've worked with them, but I've never compiled 70 spreadsheets from all different parts of a company. And as a result, what happens is there's a, there's a huge manual effort around this compiling process. I mean, there are tools. There are different tools like Cognos and, and, and such and all sorts of reporting packages that seem to all be owned by IBM, Oracle, or SAP. And there are others. There are other software as a service, sort of newer versions, cloud based versions. The one that's referenced in the journal article is Anaplan. I never met the guys there. I used to know their former CFO. But the gist of the article is that many CFOs just think that Excel is not up to the task. So if you're Microsoft, maybe you start to roll these things up. These companies are big enough where you can roll them up. And I don't know if they'd be net dilutive, net accretive. I don't know if it would even move the needle on the uh, on the earnings line, on the EBITDA line, if you're Microsoft. But at least you'd have uh, an offering if you were to acquire, and a plan and some of the other SaaS solutions that are out there. You can know, sort of accelerate your uh, investment into the cloud, and then you can begin to solve these problems. So if you're Microsoft and you acquire Anaplan, as an example, you're not necessarily cannibalizing Excel. Excel works for a number of organizations and a number of use cases where Excel is always going to work. And it's a way you could sort of create a glide path up to an enterprise offering, which could be you know Anaplan. And then if you're one of these mid-tier companies, if you're like an Infor, right, you're Charles Phillips, you're running Infor, largely a bunch of old technology that's been cobbled together through M&A. Or maybe you spend the money to acquire newer technology, like an anaplan. And I know you're private equity owned. You can't pay large multiples. I get it. But see what you can do. If you're one of these mid-tier, privately owned software companies, you're doing one, two, three billion in revenues, and you'd like to go public, but there's just not enough growth there. It's a lot of older technology. Here's a way to freshen the, the business, freshen the story, and maybe you get yourself public. Uber. Uber had a data breach, and they covered it up October 2016. This is coming from the Wall Street Journal. I read this article late last night. Uber, on Tuesday, revealed it paid hackers $100,000 in an effort to conceal a data breach affecting 57 million accounts one year ago, a disclosure that adds to a string of scandals and legal problems for the world's most highly valued startup. The ride-hailing firm said it fired its chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, and Deputy Craig Clark for their roles in the breach and for covering it up. In addition to the names, emails, and phone numbers of millions of riders, about 600,000 driver's license numbers were accessed, Uber said. Uber said financial information, such as credit cards and social security numbers, weren't taken. Uber said it identified the hackers and obtained assurances as they had destroyed the stolen data. The company said it would notify owners of the affected accounts in the coming days. Either Mr. Sullivan or Mr. Clark could be immediately reached for comment. A spokesman for Uber declined to say who would authorized the $100,000 payment. A spokesman for Travis Kalanick, Travis is the uh, founder and former CEO. Travis declined to comment. None of this should have happened, and I will not make excuses for it," said Dara Shahi. He's is the current CEO. Well, I can't erase the past. I could commit on behalf of every Uber employee that we will learn from our mistakes. So I think the lesson is, you know, as I've said previously, you've got to just assume. That hackers are trying to steal the, your data, your customers' data, 24 by 7 by 365, just constantly pinging your network, pinging your platform, trying to get a breach, a successful breach any way they can. And so you've really got you've got to run cybersecurity as a line of business, just like companies back in '04 had to get used to, public companies had to get used to sort of the two million dollar a year expense line that came with being compliant with Sarbanes Oxley, you know, roughly one, two million bucks a year. At least for the small cap companies and mid cap companies I used to cover. You you you've got to sort of just make the investment and assume that that's just part of the business now. Treat cybersecurity and cyber defense as as an offensive measure. You've got to go on the offense and be proactive. You know, it's gonna be a cat and mouse game, always the black hats and the white hats, the 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 good hackers and the bad hackers. And if you're not proactive about this stuff, it, it won't be cat and mouse. They're just always going to have a leg up on you. Now, let's assume you are breached. It's just better if you're, uh, uh, you know, if you're a public company, go public with it. If you're a private company and you're in a business that's, you know, like a retailer, for example, you've just got to go public with this stuff. Because if you, you know, if, if you discover a breach and initially it looks small and you decide, hey, I'm not going to disclose it, yeah, I think it's just better to go public. Because then, if time goes on and it's, oh, now the breach isn't so small, it's material. Well, when did you first know about it? Oh, how come you didn't do more? It's just better to get in front of the story. And I can't prescribe a um, sort of a one size fits all approach other than just try to be early, try to get in front of it, try to disclose as, as much as you can. Don't try to hide it. My guess is what happened with Uber here is they probably were doing around at the time or negotiating around. Didn't want the news to come out because it was going to negatively impact the valuation they were trying to negotiate. Public companies, obviously, you know, Equifax, didn't disclose what they knew because they didn't want the stock to get hit. Well, guess what? You, you made it worse by waiting. And because you waited and didn't look like you had a sense of urgency around it and weren't proactive about it, you ended up losing your job, you know, Richard Smith at, at Equifax, CEO, former CEO. So it's, it's, it's better to be early with this stuff. And I think there's gonna be a real opportunity, and I'm not a, a cyber expert, but you know, clearly the world is moving in a direction where you have services like Uber and you have social media services and I would expect before long you're gonna be able to execute online transactions on, on social media. And if you spend time online like I do, like many people do, time on your phone time using various applications, both consumer and enterprise. You know, a lot of these applications integrate with each other through various APIs, you know, permission-based, and there's some base-level security. But how can you be sure that you know, some of these small mobile consumer apps, as an example, not to pick on any anyone's space. But you've got a startup, maybe they've got $5 million in the balance sheet, and they're asking for your credit card information. And you would hope that they're taking precautions to secure the data. But then maybe they in turn partner with another startup maybe they integrate with 30 startups their application and that's typically where i think a lot of these processes fall down where you have multiple integrations multiple small companies that are for the most part focused on growth Focus on the customer experience. And while they do think about security, maybe it's not just the they don't run it as a business line. They have an operationalized security. And so therefore, if they have thirty or forty APIs, maybe two or three of them are from partners that have a weak spot. And the bad guys can get in through that weak API link. And maybe that weak spot's created by you know the, the, the partner. Maybe it's your, your partner who's who's weak in their processes and as a result that weakness bleeds into the API and bleeds into into you and causes risk for, for you. Wouldn't be the first time this has happened. So while the the cloud and AWS and other I mean, just technology in general has become less expensive, which is a good thing because it's enabled a lot of startup activity, and new business formation, capital formation. Well, all that's a good thing. Uh, you know, the 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 risk is that you know we're not vigilant about cybersecurity, as an example. So I don't want to bang on Uber too hard. Uh, this was pre. Dara, the new CEO, but it's just another example. And I think the last one I wanted to talk about was was Meg Whitman. She's stepping down early next year. Um, was never a fan of, of hers, I think. I'm, I'm just generally not a fan of a lot of the, the IT services companies. The world has clearly moved to cloud. And if you're selling, you know, big, heavy servers, big, heavy, big, expensive consulting engagements, the world just doesn't operate that way any, any, anymore. It's largely productized. It's subscription based revenue. It's small upfront spend, if any. And I just feel, you know, I think Mark Hurd, the former CEO at, at Hewlett Packard, was doing a pretty good job of productizing the company. I know there are a lot of guys that hate Mark because, frankly, he changed the business model, which was on his way to changing the business model. So if you were an enterprise sales guy that was, you know, typically going home with a $500,000, $2 million check, gross each year a lot of those big deals are going away because he was mark was trying to uh, productize the company and get away from you know these massive service arrangements and things like this and i think under meg whitman they were sort of betwixt and between and IBM's guilty of the same thing and i think a lot of the india-based consulting companies while they don't have the same price points and the same enterprise relationships they're still at the end of the day selling a, a service which in many cases i feel are commoditized services and so if you're selling a commodity. You better be in a in a in a fast growth area like AWS. Yeah. there's very little if any difference between Amazon's cloud, AWS, and Oracle's cloud and Microsoft and so on and so forth. But Amazon had the first mover advantage. And they're turning a commodity space into a, a a huge growth engine for the company. And the, the services companies have chosen a strategy whereby and so the you know, HP, IBM Global Services Accenture, Tata, Wipro, uh, Cognizant Infosys, all the tier two and three, tier three players in India, uh, the, the, the Chinese IT service providers, although there's, there's less of them in the dollars, uh, if you take the aggregate of the aggregate revenue with the Chinese vendors, it's a, it's a much smaller piece of the revenue pie, but they're largely commoditized services. And I just would have thought that some of these companies, particularly the US-based companies, the India-based service providers, with the revenues they're throwing off don't you guys get sick of generating 10 20% operating margins? Break-even operating margins? Why haven't you acquired, and I know some of them have done these little tuck-in acquisitions, and some of it's cultural, is, is why they haven't acquired software companies, but there are so many little software products out there that you guys all work with. Why don't you start to acquire some of them? Yeah, I used to get mad in my banking days when software companies would acquire smaller services companies or distribution arms in an effort to get revenue because it would drag their margins and drag their profitability. It's the reverse here with the services companies. If the services companies were to acquire some of these software companies, they would all be margin accretive. If not on day one, you could quickly get them margin accretive. And now you have a product. Now it's less of a consulting sale. Now it's less of a people-based business. Now you have an asset slash a product that's working for you when you sleep. You know, if you sell this, uh, what you acquire on a subscription revenue basis, it's just a function of working to get new customers on that product. The revenue just comes in pro rata, much better model. So I I think Meg Whitman, just guilty by association. uh, I think she try hard to do good things with, with HP, but I just feel like none of these services companies are running fast enough. Sort of like the insurance companies who are guilty of not adopting, not adapting fast enough to the changes in their market, particularly in auto. And this has been the case for... 10, 15 years in the IT services industry, technology enabled services industry. That's all for now. Everybody enjoy the holiday weekend. Be well.